Welcome back to another episode of the Med Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Oliveira, a second year medical student. Here on the show, we highlight the examples of outstanding physicians of color with the hopes of inspiring you all, the listeners, to pursue careers in medicine. I'm joined today by one of the GOATs, one of the greatest to ever do it, Dr. Allison Myers. Dr. Myers, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's good to see you, Justin. Always good to see you, Dr. Myers, one of our fearless leaders in the <laughs> Department of Medicine here at Einstein Montefiore. Super happy to have you on the show. I say this all the time, like before I start, like I say everybody's the GOAT, but y'all, I was putting the intro together. Let me let me read the intro first. I'll read the intro and then I'll talk about the intro. Dr. Allison Myers is a double board certified diabetic endocrinologist currently based in the Bronx, New York. Born and raised in Queens, New York, she earned her bachelor's in French from UVA and her MD from the State University of New York Downstate Medical Center College of Medicine. She completed a residency program in combined internal medicine and psychiatry at the Rush University Medical Center and a two-year endocrinology fellowship at UT Southwestern, where she stayed as an NIH T32 research fellow to study diabetes and depression. After graduating from the UTSW fellowship, she joined the faculty at Hofstra Northwell's Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine as an assistant and then associate professor, and currently serves as associate professor and chair of diversity, equity, inclusion for Einstein Montefiore's Department of Medicine. In addition to a long list of professional awards and honors, Dr. Myers is actively involved in teaching, research, and community engagement. So that's a paragraph, y'all. When I was reading through, I have everybody send me their CV so I can put together the intro. Her CV is literally 20 pages long. I counted. <laughs> I was like, yo. And growing. And growing. Her, her the goat, her the goat, her the goat. So yeah, I'm, I'm super thankful to have you on the show today. I'm really excited to get into this conversation. I think that you have a lot of gems to drop. Um, so let's get into it. Let's do it. So let's go all the way back to the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me about your life growing up. What was your neighborhood like? What was your home environment? What were the influences that you had growing up? Okay, so growing up, I grew up in Queens, which I think is the best place on earth. I entered the world into Brooklyn, but I grew up in Queens. I love Queens all day, every day. Hashtag Queens, get the money. <laughs> I grew up in Elmhurst, which is actually one of the most diverse zip codes in all the country. My neighborhood is 50% Hispanic, Latino, 30% Asian, 10% Black, and I guess the rest would be other and, and sprinkling on white. So I grew up eating some of the best food um, in the world. I have food from all over the, the world, whether it's India, Malaysia, Nepal, Colombia, we, we, we have everything. So I am really spoiled. I mean, the neighborhood changed when I first entered the world um, mm -hmm. back in the 70s. It was definitely more like an Irish, Italian, American community. But during the 80s and 90s, you definitely see a boom of other ethnic groups moving in. So it definitely has changed over the years. I love it. I'm still a part of my community. Um, I believe that one of the things that can often happen is when we as people of color attain wealth, we often leave our communities and go to other communities, but it's important that we bring some of the resources back into the places where we grew up. So I'm still in my old hood someplace. And uh, I think it's an important thing that we remember to do because when we pay nice taxes, then we can help improve the schools and other things. For sure. No, thank you for sharing that. Um, in terms of your family, was a lot of your family here? A lot of family in other states, other countries. What was that like? So um, my family, my dad is from Beemore. Um, that's where most of my family on the on the Meyer side is. So I didn't really grow up knowing my father's family very well. Uh, we didn't have people up here. We would go to Baltimore once a year. Uh, but I 
like I started connecting with some of my cousins probably in my later years, um, like in my 30s. And, you know, we got closer thanks to cell phones and I had a car so I could drive down. But yeah, I really wasn't connected to my dad's family growing up very much. It was really like we talked to my grandmother, but the other side of the family, I didn't really know as well. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother is a mashup of Caribbean and Southern. And that's probably part of the reason why I am a doctor, because, you know, you got to be a doctor, <laughs> lawyer, or accountant. So I, wait, wait, say I that fulfilled a doctor, lawyer, <laughs> what? A, a doctor, lawyer or accountant. So I uh, fulfilled her destiny by doing that. Um, she was um, a I was actually the first doctor in my family. I have one younger cousin now who's a doctor. But um, I have to say my grandmother, she came here from foreign, as they would say. Um, She and my grandfather, they connected. My grandfather and her didn't work out. So she was a single parent um, at a point where you didn't, you know, it wasn't fashionable. But that's why I tell people just because you come from a single parent household doesn't mean you can't do well. My mom has a PhD in education. My aunt, the baby, she has a master's in social work. And my other aunt, who was older, um, she worked for the telephone company. So... I had these three really strong women that, you know, definitely set a wonderful example for me growing up. Um, and of course, my dad, too. He was awesome. He uh, I shouldn't say was he's still alive. He um, is part of the reason why I do what I do, because he's had diabetes since I was in high school. So, yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, we're we're going to circle back to a lot of that. But I wanted to touch mm-hmm. on something that you said kind of earlier on. So there was a lot of pressure. You had that kind of, you know, Caribbean pressure to go and do medicine or law or accounting. When did you kind of decide that you wanted to pursue higher education? Was it something that was forced on you? Was it something that you came into? And I mean, you talk a lot about the women in your family having a lot of higher mm-hmm. education. So what was that experience like for you? So I always knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was a little kid. I professed I wanted to be a doctor that did one stop, allowed their patients to do one stop shopping. I was going to be a veterinarian. And a people doctor, as well as ah, I said when I was a kid. Okay. Yeah, I was very ambitious, but obviously <laughs> you learn you can't do that. And then because of the product of my, you know, upbringing, I grew up on the Cosby Show. Remember this guy's is before Cliff Huxtable was known to be the man he is now. So back yeah. then I had no idea. In yeah. the 80s, we didn't know what Cliff was right. up to. So you saw this power couple of the black female lawyer and the black doctor physician. And I was like, oh, yes, this is going to be my destiny. I'll be the doctor. I'll find the lawyer, yada, yada, yada. And I think <laughs> that's what it was for a lot of kids. You know, you're going to have this, you know, amazing two uh, couple, you know, power couple where you're both going to be highly educated. Um, so, you know, that kind of helped because there weren't a lot of images where you saw black people portraying doctors on television. Like I grew up watching General Hospital. You had like a couple of you know people, but really it was not something that you saw. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that you saw uh, as black images typically were more in the hood. Not so much though for those of us who might have been more middle class. Uh, you didn't necessarily see those images. So, um, or even the more affluent class, you really definitely didn't even see that. So it was nice to actually see something like, okay, this is something I can maybe get to one day. It might not be what I have, but you know, this is a dream. So I think that also kind of helped. And so I, I initially thought I was going to be an OBGYN. And then I then forensics, you know, I think the OJ trial that kind of just started sparking forensics. So by the time I got to medical school, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a forensic pathologist. But I can tell you that when I did an externship while I was at UVA at the New York wait, wait, City Medical pause, Examiner's pause, Office. Pause. We're getting too far oh, ahead. Sorry. We're too far. We're still, I oh, still want to talk early. No, we're going to get to all of that. <laughs> Um, one thing that I did want to ask, so you talked a lot about Mm -hmm. at the beginning about not having any representation really. So I wanted to ask Mm -hmm. what was your very first exposure to medicine that you remember and was it a positive experience or was it a negative experience? 
So probably I would think my pediatrician, but he was like this older, boring man. But my <laughs> allergist, he was around the corner. Dr. Peltz, may he rest in peace. I loved me some Dr. Peltz. And as far as Dr. Peltz was concerned, I was going to be an allergist and I was going to take over his practice. So <laughs> when you have somebody who doesn't look like you that but still believes in you and tells you things like this, it's it really makes a difference. So um, Dr. Peltz is no longer with us, but the person that he um, took on as a partner, Dr. Gantz, he's still around. He practices in Astoria. He left the neighborhood. But, you know, though that was probably one of the early... Like, okay, I can do this because my doctor told me I can't do this. Um, but by the time I became a doctor, allergy and immunology really wasn't my thing. But I always had that. And then the other seed I had was in high school. I had these three women. I can still tell you their name. Miss Brandeis, Miss Goldsmith, and Dr. Klein. The three of them were my science. So Dr. Klein was the chair of the science department at Hunter High School. Ms. Brandis was my biology teacher and Ms. Goldsmith was also, she was did my AP bio. And they all, like anytime there was a program or something, they would give me resources and information. And I actually ran into Dr. Klein one day on a flight home from Dallas while I was wow. in fellowship. And I was like, oh my gosh, you were one of the three that got me to where I am today. And she was like, oh my gosh, your face looks familiar. I mean, this has been like a good probably 15 years later. But yeah, yeah it was so nice to see her. And I also ran into Miss Goldsmith one day. I still never saw Miss Brandis. But the three of them really made a difference for me because if you don't have teachers that believe in you and encourage you, it can make such a difference. So I always say that was my trifecta. Shout out also to Dr. Peltz and Dr. Gantz, whom are my first allergists. But I think those people really were the ones that were like, you know, planting the seed in me, like I can do this. For sure. And you talked a lot about the support you had from both your family and then the women in school. Um, when you decided that you wanted to be a doctor and you were kind of walking around saying, I'm going to be a doctor, what was the reaction from your friends, the people in the community outside of your family? Um, do you feel like you got support? Do you feel like you got pushback? Well, I think part of the growing up and my mother being the, you know, tough uh, person she was, was being in a school where excellence was expected. So I went to Hunter, which meant that in kindergarten, I had to take a test to even get into my school. And um, part of my story, too, um, that may resonate with other people was that, you know, my neighborhood working class neighborhood, but the schools were really weren't not that great. And my mother being an educator and being the tough uh, champion that she was for a higher quality education, uh, pretty much never let me go to my neighborhood schools. So I never went to PS 13. I never went to IS 160. I never went to Newtown High School. My mother adamantly opposed that. And so what I had to do was um, my aunt lived in Harlem. So my mom and my aunt worked up and then now where I was actually able to stay with my aunt sometimes, but I also stayed home. You know, I mostly stayed at home, but my school had a requirement that you lived in Manhattan. So what we did too was my mom and my aunt worked it out where my mom was on the lease. So my mom had re dual residency and that allowed me to go to school in Manhattan. Um, it just meant that I had to commute on the subway on 45 minutes to an hour with one of my parents every day. But that, I think, really made a difference. Had I taken the route of the schools that I mentioned, I don't think I would have necessarily had the preparation to not only make it to medical school, but to also then matriculate from medical school. For sure. And I'm glad that you touched on that because I kind of want to switch gears and talk a little bit about that. So at any point prior, this can be high school, this can be undergrad, this can be whatever. What struggles did you have to overcome to get to medical school? 
I think the biggest struggle for me was uh, the MCAT. Yeah. Because the first time I took, so let me just go back in time. So when <laughs> I was Aladdin, uh, the MCAT was only given twice a year, one day in April and one day in August. And so the first time I was taking it was the summer between my third and fourth year. And unfortunately, one of my childhood friends who I had grown up in church in the Girl Scouts was tragically murdered. And I went to her wake the day before my August MCAT. Being like what, 2021, 20, not really having lost many of my friends, you know, I had a couple, you know, I was very naive to how much it was going to impact my ability to take this test the next day. I was like, oh, no big deal, you know, I'll go. And I went and seeing my friend laying in a casket. And knowing that she died due to the fact that her kid's father uh, was abusive, uh, it just, it really hit me. And I think it hit me hard the next day when I took the test. Um, on top of that, I got to the test late. Uh, so the guy who was proctoring the test yelled at me. So it was just a recipe for disaster. So the first time I took the MCAT, I scored lower than I wanted to. This is back when the MCAT was out of 45 points and then you got a letter for your essay. So it was a different scoring system. I know now you're like using five and six hundreds. Uh, so I uh, I wanted to do like I wanted eight points higher, you know, so uh, to get to where I wanted to be because I knew there was a score in my mind that I wanted. So then I had to re I re had to retake it in April and I did uh, much better even fell asleep during the biology section because I barely slept the night before, got up, finished it. And that was actually my best section of the whole MCAT, ironically enough. But uh, some schools are good at what they'll do is they'll take the average of your two exams. Some schools will just take the top score. So I was really anxious about the whole process. I did get a good number of, of the interviews um, from the schools, so that wasn't a problem. Um, in the end, but I was really concerned that because of my MCAT score, that it was going to be an issue. And I didn't really feel like talking about it because I think one of the things, especially in our community is you supposed to leave your issues in the house. You don't talk about it. So I didn't feel the need to write about it in my essay. I didn't feel the need to talk about it on interviews until I think one interview at SUNY Buffalo. I had an interview with two brothers and I just was like, oh, this is going to be cool. You know, oh, they went good cop, bad cop on me. And they were like, what happened with your MCAT? And I just, you know, told it I was like, got emotional. And like, I was just like, I couldn't believe that during an interview that something like that would happen. Um, but thankfully, that was the only time it happened. And that was my first interview. So that really threw me off. Like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be a disaster. I actually, they did grant me acceptance to Buffalo. Um, I was very surprised by that. And I think that in the end, I think they kind of apologized because they realized that they were a little hard on me. But uh, I think that was probably one of my hardest was having to realize that, you know what, I can actually not do well if I'm not mentally ready for these things. And I don't think I had ever had anything like that happen before. So um, I learned going forward, like if something like that happens, I may need to take a step back. So actually when I took my step one, I had had a car accident a few weeks prior. So I actually postponed it a couple of weeks so that I could give myself more time. But other than that, I think my journey to medical school was pretty smooth. For sure. And thank you so much for, for sharing that. I'm really sorry to hear about your friend and um yeah I may, may she rest in peace her mother took her kids and raised them but um yeah i lost contact with her mom she unfortunately uh, moved down south i haven't seen her in a while but yeah yeah and so for the people that are listening that might be 
didn't do as well as they wanted to on their first MCAT, mm-hmm. maybe on their second MCAT even. Mm-hmm. What did you kind of tap into after you didn't get the score that you wanted on your first one to know that you had to do better, you could do better, and you were going to do better? I think I needed just confidence in my support system to be like, this isn't you. You can do better. And also, I knew that when I did my practice test, I had scored somewhat better. So I didn't expect to score so low. Um, you know, so I think that really helped me a lot. And again, when I retook it, my score did go up. So it just, to me, justified the fact that that first score was a combination of me mourning and grieving, as well as me being yelled at for being late and just me being human. Yeah. All of that can take a toll on your performance. And thankfully now for, for your, your generation, uh, you guys can take it on multiple days. It's not just these twice a year. Because if I had canceled it, I would have lost my money and I would have had to wait until the following April. So I was like, well, I've studied all summer. Let me just try. Because I had done a summer program with for mm-hmm. MCAT enrichment at Yale. It was called MMEP. I forget what it's called now. Um, so I just felt like, you know, I worked so hard this summer. I did, you know, pretty well on the practice test. I got it. And then boom, I didn't have it. For sure. For sure. Thank you. Now, fast forwarding just a little bit, talking about your experience at Downstate, mm-hmm. what was that like? What made you ultimately decide to go there and just talk about that? Um, it's all about the Benjamins. That's why I went to Downstate. <laughs> downstate, when I was applying to medical school, Downstate tuition was $10,800. <sighs> and they gave me scholarship money. And I was like, okay, this is. Um, and I won't name, there's another school that had also given me, so Downstate gave me like a half scholarship and another school gave me a half scholarship. So I told the other school, well, Downstate's giving me half. You need to come harder. So the other school actually gave me a full ride, but I turned it down because I said, you know what? There's no place like Brooklyn. If I want to get good training, I'm going to Brooklyn. The other place was in the suburbs. Again, I won't name the school, but I, it was very generous, obviously, of them to give me a full ride. And I don't regret it. So when I finished med school, I only came out $38,000 in debt. So <laughs> I give back to downstate. Yeah. Let me tell you. Yeah. When they have, well, well, I'm quick, like, yeah, sign quick. me up. Let me write the check. Yes. <laughs> For the people that are listening, I mean, 38000 <laughs> might sound like a lot of money, but the average, I think, now is 300000 And so, back then, I think it was more like two, but yeah. Yeah. So $38,000 is peanuts relative to what you could be graduating medical school with. Yes, because my parents had me for college, but for med school, they were like, deuces. You're on <laughs> right. your, like, you would need to be a doctor, but we're right. not paying for this. Right. And my mother to this day will say, well, you can appreciate your MD more because you paid for it. Me <laughs> <laughs> again in a few years, how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So you went to Downstate because of the money and because of the people, because of the patients. Yeah. I knew that, and as they call it, that the county, that you were going to get the best training. Because you, we were, we, I used to tell people, you ain't trained in a place like uh, Downstate if you didn't experience being an EKG tech, a phlebotomist, a patient transporter, a straight catheter. I mean, we did it all. If you ask one of them nurses to straight cath, good luck. <laughs> they would have laughed at you. <laughs> but but in fairness to them, it has changed. They actually has stepped up their ancillary service game. So this is like going back early 2000s. So this downstate, if you, for those who are listening who might be interested in applying to downstate now, it's a completely different place. Don't think this is how it is now. It's completely different. They changed it. Obviously, 
um, it was after I left. That was the irony, of course, as well. But they did um, improve upon things. So there was less reliance on the students. But in the end, it was helpful because I know when I went to residency, people would be like, can you come put this IV in for me? Can you come draw this blood for me? So I don't regret it. I don't really use the skills anymore now because I've been spoiled in all of the places I've been. But um, I, you know, having all that exposure was a big reason why I went there because I was like, this will make me a better doctor. Plus the population is a place is a population I can relate to. It's a lot of people who are island folks. So I had a lot of laughs during my time um, at Dallas State. Yeah, it was a lot of good times, yeah. And then could you talk a little bit about how the identities that you hold, whether it's race, whether it's gender, how those impacted your experience at Downstate? So, you know, I tell, I often tell people I never had the HBCU experience, but I felt like Downstate, we kind of had that because there was, you actually saw a good number of doctors that looked like you, even if they might not have been the people that you saw the first two years, the first two years you might not have seen, but when you got out on the wards, you would see like um, the head of OBGYN, I remember she like a lot of our OB attendings, they were, you know, strong black women. So it's like I actually saw people that looked like me when I was doing rotations. And I really appreciated that. It really made a difference. Also, our shout out to our SNMA chapter, Daniel Hill Williams. We were like a giant family. And um, we used to have I think I, I've shared this with you, Justin. We used to have a brother who was the uh the chief of ophthalmology, and he used to have a yearly Christmas party. Yeah. Now, I grew up in Queens my whole life. I never knew anyone that lived in the gated community in Forest Hills with the cobblestone streets. This man did. He had an elevator in his house, and he would throw a party. He had an open bar. He had people serving us. We were just a bunch of poor med students, and it was fabulous. He had the high-end hors d'oeuvres. I'm talking shrimp, colossal <laughs> size, crab cakes. I mean, he pulled out all the stops. It rolled out the red carpet for all of, us, all of us. So he would invite all the students of color and faculty. And we would, and you would forget that these were your attendings because it was like, these are my aunties and uncles. Like it was so nice. And he did that every year around the holidays. And then also um, we used to have a graduation at the end of the year, like SNMA with, um, and at that point, I don't think we had an LMSA chapter. So the black and Hispanic students, we were all very close. We had our own little separate graduation dinner and we did it at a high-end catering like we weren't doing it at some little hokey pokey type of place <laughs> we would rent out a nice catering hall get dressed up have fancy food so it was like we I really felt like we were like a community and I still yeah. keep up with some of the people that I was in med school with I still have 20 years later kept up with several people and some of them are in the city. So I refer to them. They refer to me uh, when we, you know, we have issues, we rack each other's brain. If I need an article. I know I can call, you know, so it's definitely been a great network that I've maintained. That's beautiful. So that was talking about a lot of the good, right? Before mm -hmm. we switch gears and talk about your specialty, I just want to talk about the bad a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so either as your experience as a medical student, as a resident, as a junior attending, or even now as a senior attending, could you talk about some experiences mm -hmm. that you've ever had personally or you witnessed discrimination? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I can remember the one that probably stands out. I can think of two. So the first one I can think of when I was a medical student. So when I was on my medicine rotation, I was rotating at Lenox Hill, which we used to call Lenox Hill. It was the hospital of rich and famous. And this is before it became a Northwell. It was its own uh, freestanding hospital. And we had a patient and she would like try to touch my hair. 
uh, for those of you who can't see me, I have dreadlocks. And back in medical school, my dreadlocks were all the way down my back. I They were very long. And no, these are not full locks. My hair really did grow this long. I have a lot of hair. So <laughs> she used to want to touch my hair. And like when we'd be rounding, she'd like do this clawing motion and reach out. And I would tell her one day she kept, she did it. And I said, look, you have $10,000. And she said, no. And I said, well, because it's not a petting zoo and I'm not a pony, you need to pay me $10,000 if you want to touch my hair. If you don't have that, stop asking me. And so then one of the nurses who was from the Caribbean, she said, you're absolutely right. She said, this lady has a lot of nerve to ask you that. And it was just like, I don't think she realized, like going back to what you said, as a black woman who has natural hair, I felt very disrespected. It's like I'm a, like a rag doll or something to you. Like, I think this has been an ongoing issue that we as women of color have had. It's like people want to touch your hair and it's just not cool. Like my hair is my crown. Like nobody should be touching, like no random people should ever be touching my hair. Um, and I feel like it's an invasion of privacy. And this is something that, you know, we, like I said, as women of color have to go through. And obviously as a man of color with dreads, I'm sure, you're, you know, you'll have people who are inappropriate just the same. So it's not so much that it was discriminatory, but I think it was really highly inappropriate. And I'm sure, and she never tried doing this, obviously, with my resident who was Caucasian with long blonde hair. So I felt like, you know, it wasn't so much that she was being racist, but she was being inappropriate. And it was, I think it was, you know, disrespectful to me and my culture. Uh, one more recent instance that happened in last, at the end of last year, when I, before I left um, my previous job at Northwell, was I walked into a patient's room. I had on my white coat, my ID, my goggles, my bouffant, scrubs. Oh, you can take my tray. And I said, excuse me. And see, thankfully, in this time of mass, you can hide your expression. So like, I have this thing where I like kind of sometimes bite the inside of my cheek when somebody says something really, really inappropriate. And I was just like, why would, sir, no, why would I take I'm, your tray? I'm, I'm laughing because I do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, sir. I was like, I had to have a moment. It's like a twist moment. So I didn't, because I was like, then he's like baiting me to go there. And I said, I'm not doing it. And I said, sir, why would I take your tray? I'm your doctor. Well, doctors don't take trays. And the man never even as much as apologized. He just said, oh. And I was just like, he, the fact that he didn't realize that what he did was a problem and didn't acknowledge it, that was a bigger issue than the fact that he assumed that I was dietary. To me, that was even worse. You know, at least if he was like, oh, I'm sorry, that's my bad. But he just sat there and was like, oh. And even though I sat there and went through all his medications, the man would never once apologize to me. Um, and I definitely felt that that was obviously very discriminatory because he was assuming because what, I'm a black woman. Um, and also my other issue is I look younger than I am. I look about 10 or 15 years younger. So because I look younger and I'm a black woman, then you're assuming that I'm dietary. And obviously we need dietary. There's nothing wrong. But there's a reason why I have a badge that says uh, Myers on it, Dr. Myers on it. It's because I went to medical school and I'm a physician and I'm boarded. So you should respect that no. and not assume that all no. I can do. Right. I have I passed my medicine board times two. Um, I'm doing my research for uh, endocrinology 10 year. Um, and I'm board eligible. I just never took my psych boards, but I could have sat for them as well. But it's like, I did all this. And yet all you can see me as is someone to take your tray. And this has been a recurrent theme. I've been the nurse. I've been the social worker. I'm the TV operator. Can you help me with my TV? Like people, I don't think they even realize sometimes how insulting it is when they ask you these things, even though you've introduced yourself as the doctor or you have on the appearance, because unfortunately the quote unquote doctor is seen as the white male.
And I even remember once in residency, I was rounding with my team. I was the senior resident on the team, the third year medical student. And it was one of our own people who thought that my medical student was the leader of the team because he was the white male. And I, have to, I said something to him about it nicely. And I said, you know, the little coat is not the high end of the totem pole. That's the shorter end of the totem pole. These long coats, we're the ones who have the most seniority. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. I was wrong of me to assume. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of the double, you know, discrimination. It's like what uh, Dr. Crenshaw calls intersectionality that we as Black women have to deal with. Because first of all, we're Black. Second of all, we're women. And then there's other things afterwards that come into it, whether you're a woman wearing a hijab or, you know, you're a woman with an accent, you're foreign, like all these other things can come into play as to how patients will respond to you. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing all that. So now switching a little bit and talking about your specialty. Well, before we even get to your specialty and your subspecialty, mm -hmm. I want to go back to something that you just talked about. So we, as I mentioned at the outset, you did your residency and a combined program with internal medicine and psychiatry. Mm -hmm. What kind of led to that decision? And then were you thinking about psychiatry? How did that happen? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what happened was when I was in school, <laughs> <laughs> psychiatry, we were given like five different, you had to rank them. So I really wanted to do consult liaison with Dr. His name was Long, so we used to call him, I think, Dr. V. He was amazing. He was boarded in medicine, psychiatry, geriatric. Like, he, I think, had passed, like, five boards. This man was brilliant. And so I wanted to do consult liaison with him at the county because I was like, he's so smart. He's funny. Like, and he was, like, really cool people. And I just knew rounding with him would be fun. So I put that as first. I didn't get it. I got my third choice. I was at Downstate. And so I was like, okay, we'll just make it work. And it turned out. You know, what they, what they say, when one door closes, another opens. It was my destiny because I actually met one of my mentors, Dr. Daniel Friedman, who I still uh, talk to off and on over the years. I last saw him about a year or two ago. And he was double boarded. He trained at my undergrad alma mater, University of Virginia, and he had done med psych. So he, uh, I like the fact that even though he was a director on the inpatient psych unit, he could address the medical issues. I had a patient, she was from St. Vincent. Her kids pretty much had kidnapped her because their father had been abusive. And a lot, several of them had left St. Vincent. Some of them stayed and they wanted to get her out of there. They were sick of having, watching their mom get beat regularly by this man. So when she came to America, like it happens to other people, um, it, she had a nervous breakdown and they brought her to the hospital because they did not know what to do with her. And she was manic. So when she would speak, and I'm, I can talk really quickly, but this woman could outdo me. When she would speak, granted, St. Vincent is a British colony, so it's not like she's speaking Spanish or something else. But no one understood what that woman could say. For some reason, I understood her clear as a whistle. They'd be like, Myers, can you come and translate? <laughs> and she, she literally sounded like, she literally sounded like... Yeah. <laughs> but I actually can make out the words. So one time she's like telling me, Doc, I'm pregnant. I'm like, you're not pregnant, lady. You're 60 years old. You've had all your babies. Okay, no. Because I think she had like eight or nine kids. She, had, she So she knows pregnancy. Don't get me wrong. But I'm like, you're postmenopausal. No. So after about like the second or third time, I told my doc, uh, attending, I was like, I think that there's something wrong with her stomach. She just doesn't know how to say it because she's so psychotic. So we called GI. They scoped her. 
they found pounds and pounds of rotten food because she had severe gastroparesis. And so gastroparesis can cause bloating, nausea and vomiting, which is common in somebody who's pregnant. So in fairness to her, the symptoms could very well overlap with pregnancy. So she wasn't far off, except for the fact that she was in her 60s. Um, and they were like, it was probably one of the nastiest scopes they'd ever seen. It was just so much rotten food yeah. because of her diabetes. She had really bad gastroparesis. And so that's when I was like, okay, I don't necessarily have to be in a psychiatric ward, but I can be an advocate for my patients who have endocrine issues, who clearly have psych issues. And let me tell you, they love me. I have a lot of patients that have, you know, lots of psychopathology, whether it's personality disorders or mood disorders. And I feel really comfortable in dealing with it. You know, some of my patients, they'll come in and start having tamper tantrums. And I let them go. And I'm like, when you're ready, let me know. I know how to set boundaries and I know how to deal with all these little you know, nuances because I do have the psychiatric training. So even though I may not formally be doing therapy any longer, I still have um, definitely prescribe some of the medications. Um, and I definitely, like I said, I feel like I have the tools to deal with difficult patients. And let me tell you, people will tell you, I hate covering for Myers because her patients are very difficult. <laughs> and so I have patients that are like that. And again, because of my psych training, I understand how to deal with them. And they, like I said, as much as I think they would fire me, <laughs> they don't. And when I left my last job, some of my patients actually came. Some wow. of my patients are like, I don't care if I have to come over the bridge. Yeah. I'm you're stuck with me, Myers. I will, if I have, I have patients that leave the state and they fly up and they'll still come. So like, you know, and some of them are not obviously having psych issues, but like, I just, I, like I said, people that are deemed difficult, I usually can find ways to get through and they're not as difficult, but it comes again with the training, I think. That's really beautiful. And okay, so awesome. Can you describe a little bit what endocrinology is and then your subspecialty in diabetes? Okay, sure. So endocrinology is the study of hormones and metabolism. So that means we're dealing with diabetes. That means we're dealing with thyroid issues, adrenal, pituitary, um, ovarian, and testosterone, as well as bone. I think I covered them all. Yeah. So um, most of my research has been in the area of diabetes. So I tend to focus on it, but I I am a general endocrinologist, so I, today I can tell you I had patients that saw me for thyroid issues, parathyroid issues, so I can do it all, but diabetes has been, again, like my focus just because there's so much of it in my family. My dad, on my mom's side, both of her parents have it, my cousins had it, I've been borderline myself, so, you know, you know that's, it's, it's impacted so many of the communities of color, so that's really been like one of my favorite, but I, like I said, I am a general endocrinologist, so I do see other uh, issues as well. For sure. And then we talked about what drew you to your specialty, but what qualities do you think make a successful, I guess in your case, I, I normally frame it as a resident, but we'll do endocrinology specifically. So mm -hmm. what qualities do you think makes a successful fellow in your field? So I think the key with endocrinology is you have to be somebody who has curiosity because you really have to do some digging to figure out, okay, what hormones should I be checking? And then once you figure out what you're checking, you have to figure out, well, where's the problem? Is it coming from up above in the pituitary or is it becoming from one of the end organs? So I think you have to be really inquisitive and you have to be really good at interpreting labs. And if those are the things that really don't tickle your fancy, then endocrinology is probably not for you. 
Uh, I've been able to diagnose rare conditions like Sertoli only syndrome, which you're probably like, I've never heard of. I've also diagnosed pheochromocytoma, which is one in a million, but I've probably found four or five. Uh, so, you know, wow. I like doing those type of things, finding things that are rare. Yeah. So that's so we had a lecture last year and mm -hmm. he was like, I remember they had primed us in the lecture talking about pheochromocytoma. And so everybody was picking it as the answer in the lecture. And he was like, no, you're never going to see this ever in your practice. So the fact that you've seen four is insane. That's crazy. We actually did a case series. Um, I think we did actually yeah, one of my uh, one of my uh, fellows, we wrote up, we had several because the thing is very uh, often they may not present in the most obvious way. Right. Like one guy we had, he presented with like just literally sepsis and his blood pressure, you know, usually in, like in sepsis, your blood pressure is dropping. So you wouldn't necessarily think that you would have uh, a feel in the setting of sepsis, but they were trying to find the source of his infection and they scanned him and that's when they saw the adrenal mass. That's crazy. Yeah. So it's, it's can be so random, but yeah. I think honestly, truly, so medicine for the most part, kind of makes me run the other direction. And I think that a lot of the classes so far I have not enjoyed like within the systems because it's so medicine heavy, but we're in endocrinology now. I don't know, something about it is different from the rest of medicine. I like it a lot. I think it's really, mm -hmm. really interesting. Not enough to do it over surgery, of course, but I think that like the, the presentations are super cool. And also, I don't know, it just seems more logical than a lot of the other medicines because it's A causes B, you have mm -hmm. to figure out if C is because of B or A, right? Right. But it, it kind of all follows that same kind of logical progression. So very cool. Yeah. And you know, there's endocrine surgeons. Like there's a that's that's something you may want to consider. Yeah. So endocrine oh, I didn't surgeons. Know yes, and it's it's actually pretty cool. So the guys I used to work with at Northwell, mm -hmm. my the, the team that I used to the red the red team, they those were my guys. Uh, they would those are the team that was the team I used to use for uh, adrenalectomies when you take out the adrenal gland, and they used to do robotics. Like you can go over to Europe and train in all types of cool robotics. Um, but yeah, I think it, Holland is the place where they really did it. it was, um, yeah, so you can do adrenalectomies using a robot. It's pretty neat in re a retroperitoneal um, yeah. approach. Uh -huh. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. awesome. So yeah, they very often will take out thyroids, adrenals. Um, sometimes they take out parathyroids as, as well. But right. um, yeah. Okay, something to look into. And so we were talking a little bit about this before we started the recording, mm -hmm. but um, could you talk a little bit about what a typical day in the life looks like for you? Or if it's easier to answer it this way, what a typical week looks like for you? Oh, that's fine. So um, I think just by nature, I get bored easily. So I don't <laughs> like doing the same. I just, I can't do the same thing. So when I used to do inpatient diabetes every, uh, every day, five days a week, I, I was miserable because I, it's so monotonous to do the same thing every day. I don't like it. So I like the fact that my schedule is all over the place. So 50% of my time is de dedicated to my work as the Associate Chair of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. So during that time, it's having meetings, building partnerships, working on presentations because I have to go out and speak about these things, um, and uh, meeting with my boss every other week to make sure that we're moving the needle on uh, DEI, making this place more inclusive and uh, trying to recruit. So that's that's a lot of work. So that's 50 percent of my time. Then one to two half days a week, I'm in the faculty practice. 
um, seeing my outpatients. Uh, one day a week, I'm at Jacoby uh, in the diabetes clinic. It's run by the residents. So myself and my partner, Dr. Kishore, we staff that clinic where the attendings there. And then the rest of my time, I'm spending on research. So I'm actively working on, what is it, one, two, three uh, research projects. And then there's a grant that we had to start, we were supposed to submit from when I was at Northwell um, last year, but it didn't happen. We should submit this year, but it's looking like now for February. So <laughs> yeah, I wear three hats. I'm a DEI slash researcher slash clinician. And as I get older, the clinician part can continue to be low. It's fine with me. I mean, with all that you do, where do you find the time to be active in the community? And then where do you find time for yourself? Okay, so me time, uh, I'm a big fan of me time. I'm, I'm, an only, <laughs> I'm, an only, I'm an only child. So I'm used to like when I was a kid. So um, like some, on, on weekends, I've just been on call for the past two weeks. But on weekend, I'm going to be very honest with you. My phone stays on do not disturb. I literally, usually Friday night or Saturday morning, I put my phone on do not disturb. And I glance at it from time to time. But I just need to recharge. And I realize as I get older, I'm becoming more of of introverted. So I really think I'm an outgoing introvert. I love being sociable. But at the end of the day, I like to go home to recharge. And a lot of people think because I am so outgoing that I must be this extrovert. But no, actually, I get recharged being in the house. So um, like for me, a great like, day of solitude, like nobody bother me, is to get up in the mornings, clean up the house, maybe prepare a meal and go to the gym. Like that's the best. Uh, to me, that's like the, the best self-care. The last week, for example, after I finished rounding with my fellow, I went over to City Island, got me a lobster meal and I was happy as a clam. <laughs> I was like, man, this is great. And I just sat in the booth by myself. It wasn't too crowded in the restaurant. And I was just like at peace. And I just sometimes need that. Um, I try not to do too much retail therapy, but sometimes that also is fun. But, you know, I try to be wise with my money. So I try not to go shopping regularly. But um, I really find that, you know, I need like a time because like today, for example, I was in clinic. Then I was in the practice. So I've literally been talking to and catering to people all day. So really, when I get home, I'm just like, please. Nobody, I don't want to talk to <laughs> I love you all to pieces, but. <laughs> now nah, that's real. And again, I appreciate you. I mean, nobody ever knows when I'm doing these episodes, like, cause I publish them on Sunday mornings, but like mm -hmm. for context, y'all, it is 6.30 on a Tuesday. Dr. Myers has been at work all day and then hopped on this call. So definitely really, really appreciate it for sure, for sure. Yeah, no, it's it's been great. This is this is awesome. I've watched other shows, and I'm proud of you. You're doing a great job with this, Justin. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, so before we end the call talking about mentorship, I always ask, what do you see the future of endocrinology being, and what special role, if any, do you see for, or what special need, if any, do you see for increasing diversity within your specialty? Yeah. So what I'm loving about endocrinology, especially in diabetes, is the push for technology. So uh, continuous glucose monitors, insulin pumps, like this is going to be the wave of the future, more technology. And why I like this is with these new continuous glucose monitors, I uh, can actually, we actually can have patients' data and saved in a cloud. And thanks to Bluetooth technology, we can actually access it. So God forbid we have a COVID surge or the weather's really bad and we have to convert to telehealth. If somebody uses one of these devices, 
and they're connected to our clinic or our practice, we can actually see what their sugars have been doing for the past two weeks, 90 days. So it makes such a difference in, in our ability to adjust rather than me sitting there on the phone with them and having to painstakingly write down their glucose. So I really think that this, this technology is really going to make a difference. Um, and I just hope that CMS which is pretty much Centers for Medicare, Medicaid, um, they kind of dictate coverage. I just hope that they become a little bit more loose with who they'll cover for insulin pumps and uh, continuous glucose monitors as we go on. I think these newer medications that have also come out are making diabetes much more fun. But on the flip side, I think it's a lot harder for non-specialists to keep up with them. And I think that, you know, I see a lot of patients coming from the community and they're not necessarily getting these newer medications. And there have actually been studies that have shown that there are disparities in prescribing. Unfortunately, in our community, it's, you know, it's being prescribed less. And these are the newer drugs, the GLP-1 receptor agonists and the SGLT2 inhibitors. And these drugs are game changers for obesity, cardiac disease, stroke. Um, and unfortunately, these are the things that our people are at risk for, also kidney disease, um, mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily getting them. So endocrinologists, we're pretty good about prescribing, but the primary care doctors are a little bit more gun shy. Cardiology has been doing, uh, they've been using the SGLT2 inhibitors a lot, especially for heart failure. Uh, but the problem is, is that they're not necessarily um, giving you the greatest bang for your buck for the diabetes, but they do do great things for kidneys and for, car and for hearts. And the nephrologists have been pretty good about using them too. So I think that these newer medications, um, looking at other hormones besides insulin and these uh, new technologies for diabetes care, are going to make like, and I think it's making endocrine much more fun. And I would recommend to anyone who's interested in doing endocrine, you can look at the Endocrine Society for which I'm a member and I'm a member of the Publications Committee. There's uh, programs that we have for mentorships. You can attend meetings. They have scholarships. Um, the FLARE program is a wonderful example where you uh, get some mentorship and research around endocrinology. Um, Excel is a program that I actually participated in. I was uh, I taught it for that. It's a program for people who come from marginalized communities um, to, learn, to get uh, leadership training in endocrinology, people who are early career just coming out of fellowship. So if you're interested in endocrine, definitely check out the Endocrine Society website. There's a lot of great things. ACE also is another society. I don't belong to them, but it's another good option, um, the Association of, of uh, Clinical Endocrinologists. So if people want mentoring and more opportunities, those are definite. And there's also um, the Association for Endocrine Surgeons, Justin. I'm going to check it out. <laughs> yeah, they, they just they just put out some guidelines around their, their adrenal gland. So check it out. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to check it out. And then what need do you see in your field for increasing diversity? Oh, yes. I, I should have pulled it up. But like, I think I'm one of what, three to I think it's only three or four hundred black endocrinologists based on double AMC data and maybe uh, six or eight hundred Hispanic. And yet we bear the big burden of diabetes. Um, I mean, even worse, obviously, are Native Americans, and I. And there's not even, I think, 50 Native American endocrinologists. So there definitely is. There's definitely a large need. Um, most of the endocrinologists that we have are either white or Asian, which is also consistent with what we see with medical school enrollment. So um, the endocrine society is aware. They're trying to. It's, it's you know just catching people early. I'm going to be honest. You know, for some people, they're that glamour because we don't have a lot of procedures and we're not on the high end of the totem pole when it comes to financial uh, compensation. So for some people that, that, you know, can be an issue, but I can say in terms of lifestyle, 
I don't feel like my lifestyle has the demands and rigors of some of the other uh, subspecialties or parts of medicine. I think you can have a pretty decent lifestyle. I definitely have gotten my travel and fun times in. For sure. Dr. Epstein, who runs a course for Einstein, his selling point at mm-hmm. one of the first lectures was like, if you become an endocrine fellow, nobody's ever going to wake you up in the middle of the night to come in. Well, it's funny you say that the other night I, I actually slept. I slept through a call by mistake. I was knocked out. And the thing is, the irony was the patient was looking for their pulmonologist. So the call wasn't even meant for me, but they did technically wake me up. I just didn't hear the phone ring because I was that tired. But yeah, they called at like 1215. I think I had gone to bed at 1130 knowing that I wanted to get up early. Yeah, her C, her CPAP was acting up. I said, see, this is why I'm glad I didn't do sleep medicine. <laughs> <laughs> no, <it's okay. laughs> yeah so i did get a call but okay it wasn't for it you. was for the wrong it was for the wrong doctor exactly it was not meant for me the mess the answering service messed up okay. so it's funny that you mentioned that all right bet so for the last few minutes of the call not going to take up too much more of your time but i always it's like okay. to close talking about mentorship and i know that mm-hmm. you talked about it a lot throughout the conversation already but i want to ask outright what role has mentorship played throughout your career in allowing you to get to where you are today Okay. So I think uh, as a a pearl that I learned not too long ago. So in the beginning, you start out with mentorship, but then when you kind of get into career, you need also sponsorship. Right. So mentorship, I think the key to mentorship is that it has to be bi-directional. It can't be me just imparting knowledge and giving advice to my mentee. My mentee also has to give me something because I love learning. Like I feel like the best mentoring relationships that I've had it are ones where I'm learning and you're learning. It can't be just one-sided because then it's kind of like the old paternalistic way of medicine. And I'm not really fond of that. So I definitely think that uh, there's a bi-directional relationship. And I think also we have to be honest. Sometimes you can outgrow your mentor, you know, and I think once you get to a certain point in your career, you may have to have that reckoning and you may have to move on. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can still maintain them, but then you may have to sort of higher heights. And, um, you know, there's nothing, like I said, wrong with saying, okay, I need a new mentor. Um, But I definitely would say for uh, people of color, it's good to have what I call like a sister girl or your, your, you know, your guy, because sometimes you're going to need to bounce something off of somebody who can understand some of the microaggressions, discrimination and things you can go through. Um, and obviously you can have mentors that don't look like you that can be allies, but, um, I always say that, you know, one of my mentors, uh, who's an endocrinologist, and again, there's not many black endocrinologists, Dr. Sharita Golden, even though she's in another sorority, I still love her to death. Um, I always call her my sister girl mentor and she knows we throw shade all the time. It's all good. <laughs> um, but yeah, she, I always tell people that's my sister girl mentor, like, that's the lady I can talk to. Like every time we have endocrine society, we have we get together. Me, her, Joshua, like the, the, we all get together. Like because sometimes we just need to vent, you know. So I always feel like you definitely need to have somebody like that in in medicine that you can bounce ideas off of, or just like when you're having a day, where you're like, "Is it me? Have I lost my mind? Am I crazy? Or you know, <laughs> was, this, was this offensive? You know." Uh, so I definitely recommend that you have that, you know, and um. I think that uh, just to explain the sponsorship part, as you grow in your career, you're going to want to get a promotion. And right. a big part of promotion is outside speaking engagements, publications. So a sponsor, I look at it this way, and I, I definitely have sponsored people. 
uh, is someone that you're not going to necessarily talk to on a regular basis because they tend to be very busy because they're, you know, higher level. But they're the person, you know, that will look out like, like, for example, Dr. Golden, Sharita, she uh, was asked to do a book chapter. She did not have the bandwidth. So she said, but I know somebody who can do it. So that was nice because then it got me a book chapter when I was in the point of my career when I was trying to go from assistant to associate professor. So sponsors are great to have. They'll be the ones like, you know what? I have a lot on my plate right now, but there's this talk as so-and-so. Let me give this to you. Um, And like I said, I definitely now can say that I've gone to that point where I just sometimes have to say no. And I'm like, but I know somebody else who's really good. So um, that's something, like I said, as you go through your career that you want to have someone like that who you know has you know like who's the plug as you would say who is well connected who may be asked to write papers and do speaking engagements but you know that if they're overwhelmed or have too much on their plate they would be kind enough to pass it on to you and I think that also comes with maturity because I think there's some mentors or sponsors who don't realize that they are their cup runneth over and they do need to share I have seen experiences and that has taught me don't be like that. But I have definitely seen some people who don't really grow and groom their mentors the way they should be or sponsor them the way they should be. Um, So I I definitely say say I've had wonderful experiences and I've also had not so great experiences. For sure. But mostly positive. Going off that directly, what qualities do you think make the best mentors? I think it depends on the situation and what you're looking for. So again, like, you may have, like I say, like I always think of Dr. Golden as my sister girl mentor. Um, like now I'm working, I, I just got a grant that I'm working with um, a colleague in infectious disease and she's a bit more senior than I am. She's a full professor, I'm still associate. So I feel like she's a research mentor, uh, but her research has been mostly in basic sciences and I've done research in clinical. So I can teach her some things and then she can teach me something. So it's kind of like I said, that whole bi-directional because she comes from a basic science, but this woman has gotten NIH funding off the wazoo. Like she is a well-funded woman. So I was like, yes, I'm glad you reached out to me. I want to soak this all up from you. And, you know, with my background in mixed methods, there were things that I was able to teach her. So it's been really a great, again, that bi-directional type of situation where we both can uh, learn from each other. Um, so I think, you know, it depends on what you want your mentor to do, because a mentor can't be everything for you. So if you want a research mentor, you got to find somebody who has, you know, somewhat similar research uh, interests so that you can learn from them. But if you want someone who's more of a career mentor, then you want someone who's going that trajectory. So if you think you want to go more the admin route, then you find somebody who's on the admin track. Um, and I think that's really what you want to do. I mean, for you all in medical school, you're just trying to figure out what am I going to how am I going to get out of here? Like. I need to graduate. So I think your mentorship can be a little bit more loose, but I'm kind of talking more for like attendings. But I think for for where you are, it's like, okay, who can help me so that this way I can get out of here in four years and have a fruitful career? For sure. For sure. Thank you. And then quickly on the other side of that, what makes the best mentees? (sighs) I guess it depends. Like, (laughs) I don't know. I think, I don't know. I feel like for me, it's the people, I always find like the mentees that I feel like I find like a piece of myself in them. Those are the ones I usually, you know, like the ones that are very inquisitive, like th- that for me, like I love, cause that's how I am. The ones who are inquisitive, the ones who, I even have shy mentees cause obviously I'm not shy, but I even have shy mentees, but I still like, I have mentees that I'll be shy, but like there's oomph in them. And I, and I appreciate it. Like I, you know, I can see, I see the other side of them when they're, you know, 
around me but I find like there's similar personality qualities and that's why it works out because we're just kind of similar cut from the same cloth you know it could be someone that grew up in my neighborhood or um sometimes like I joke with some of the residents um that might have gone to like my my competitive high school like oh you went to the other school but it's all good we went to specialized (laughs) high schools you know shout out to Hunter forget Stuyvesant you know (laughs) but uh (laughs) yeah yeah so I think that's it you know you find little things that you connect on, um, you know, the parent experience, like you had the, I always tell my, tease my mom, like you're a tiger mom. So I think all, you know, just like you find these little things that you kind of have in common and it works out. So I think that's usually what it is. You always find one little thing you have in common with somebody and then you just kind of gel from there. For sure. Thank you very much. So I always end three super quick questions. Okay. First. Regardless of specialty interests, what's one book you think every student interested in medicine should read? Um, so if you remember back, I mentioned I had the three high school uh, teachers. So Dr. Brandis, she was so cute. She came to me one day and was like, I want you to read this book, Allison, The Black Apollo of Science, The Life of Ernest Everest Just. And even though he wasn't like an MD, he was an embryologist. It just shows you like, like we're standing on the shoulders of giants and it shows you how somebody in the early 1900s persevered to become, you know, an amazing um, person who contributed so much to science. Um, You know, he was like one of the first Blacks to graduate from Dartmouth in the early 1900s. And we have to remember, this is in the context of 1910, when when Dr. Fleckner, who was an educational doctor, not an MD, shut down a whole bunch of our medical schools. And, you know, he helped decrease the pipeline and it's projected that we probably could have had 10 to 20,000 more black physicians had he not done that. So, you know, I think we need to think about the racial overtones that obviously are there today, but it was even worse 100 years ago um, because most of us wouldn't have been able to go to medical school. And the irony is we're still at 5% of physicians, go figure. Thank you. That I mean, I'm just like, I'm taking in all the gems. <laughs> so second, what is one resource you think all underrepresented pre-med students should access or be familiar with? So um, I, I, I'll i be biased. Again, one of those people in the other sorority. Uh, I love mentoring <laughs> in medicine. Hey. Dr. Wynn Holden. Yes, hey. I have to give a shout out to Dr. Wynn Holden. <laughs> I love mentoring in medicine. I got involved in mentoring in medicine, I forget how many years ago. Um, but, and I, and I donate to them because I think what she's doing is fascinating, the work that she does. And I do volunteer at times when she has Zooms and back before COVID, I even did a couple of things in person, but I just think she's a phenomenal person, but I think it's just an amazing program and it introduces people to science at a very young age. And she's been doing a lot, even virtually. So I've often, when kids have come to me, I say, you got to check out mentoring and medicine. So shout out to Dr. Lynn Holden. For sure. As a proud product of mentoring in medicine, I have to say, I have to agree with you. For mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. You guys really like she she's highlighted the alum and some of you really have gone great places. So shout out to Dr. Holden. For sure. And last, what advice do you want to leave with underrepresented students pursuing medicine? So I would just say pay it forward. So, you know, somebody is why you're here today. So then you have to make sure that you do the same thing. So I have several, I mean, I still have my kids that I mentor. I I call them all my children and it's not to disrespect them, but they know I'm very maternal. So they see me as a mother figure, but I still have uh, my mentees from Northwell, even though I, I told them, even though I'm leaving, 
I, and I told the people who ran the program, I will mentor you until the end of time. It's fine. And I also am a part of the downstate mentoring program. Uh, so my mentee, her name is also Allison, go figure, coincidentally <laughs> enough. So um, I'm all for it. When you get to become a doctor, make sure you bring other people into this, whether it's working with high school kids, college kids, or medical students, you got to pay it for it because we're 13% of the population and yet only 5% of doctors. Hispanics make up 18% of the population and only six, 5 to 6% of doctors. So there's something wrong here and we need to close the gap because we are the patients and it makes a difference when people see us because because we can understand the cultural nuances um, and it makes a difference with patient health outcomes and studies have shown that. For sure, 100%. Last question for real, for real. This is not on the script. This is just sure. a question. What's your go-to lock product? Okay. My go-to lock product? It's um, it was it the Jamaican, I usually use the Jamaican lime, mango lime. Man, yeah, mango called? and lime Jamaican castor oil. Yeah, that's the one I use. Um, it's not a castor oil though. I don't use not the castor, castor oil. I was told, yeah, I was told never to use castor oil. It's a lock job, but it's not castor oil. I don't think I forget what it is. But I actually get my hair done professionally. I, my my girl's been doing my hair for almost twenty years, but uh, she had the nurse to go on vacation last month, so I had to do it myself in between. But yeah, <laughs> I can do it, but I choose not to because this is the way I'm putting money in the community. So shout out to my girl at the beauty bar. Yes, sir. We okay. always love the shout outs. Yes. <laughs> I'm a big proponent of supporting black and brown businesses. And that's something we've been doing here, trying to improve upon that. For sure. With that, we'll conclude the episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Myers, for taking the time out of your day. Thank you for all the knowledge that you shared over the past hour. Um, you have anything you want to say in closing? I want to say thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, for those of you who are out there who are interested in coming to Einstein, please definitely come through. And you definitely can hit me up. It's uh, Ali Myers at Montefiore.org. So that's A-L-Y-M-Y-E-R-S at Montefiore.org. Not two E's, one E. Perfect, perfect, perfect. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Myers. For everybody listening, that concludes the episode. And until next time, remember to keep inspiring by example. Take care, y'all. Yeah. First family love. <laughs> <laughs> All right.